I read once more the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the third chapter, from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I want particularly this morning to call your attention to that last phrase in the 19th verse, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now we come here beyond any question to a phrase, to a statement which has been well and rightly described by someone as the climax of all prayer. It is quite certain that nothing higher than this is conceivable either in the realm of prayer and petition or in the realm of experience. It is inconceivable, I say, that there should be anything higher than this. Now, we've been following the apostle and observing how in this prayer of his he has been, as it were, climbing a ladder, or if you like, a mountain. And he has gone on from step to step. And each time he has been going higher and higher. And here at last he reaches the summit. His desire for these Ephesians went on rising. And his thought about them, and still more important, his whole thinking of the Christian faith and the possibilities of the Christian faith have gone on from step to step, from rung to rung, until he has arrived at this great height. In other words, he is not satisfied with them as they are. He thanks God for them. He's already been doing that. They had been pagans. They were far away from Christ and without God in the world but they have been made nigh, and he rejoices in that. He thanks God for it, but he's not satisfied. That's only the beginning. That isn't the whole of redemption. He had been called and set apart to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And they know very little about that. They've got the first principles, the first beginnings, but no more. And that is why, you see, he here prays for them. 
He wants them to realize these larger, greater, infinite possibilities. And he not only wants them to realize that there are such possibilities, he wants them to partake of them. He is anxious that they should enjoy them. And so, you see, he has planned his prayer, and he goes on from step to step. But here, as I'm saying, we arrive at the very climax, the acme, the very zenith of it all. Nothing, I say, is conceivable beyond this. Again, someone has said, and said very rightly, that the perfection of men consists in his being full of God. So the apostle here is praying for perfection. The perfection of men consists in his being full of God. And that is the petition that the apostle has arrived at. Each of the previous ones has suggested another, and that in turn has suggested another. And here he comes right to the end. Now, the connection is very important, and you notice that the first word in the phrase reminds us of it, that. And that means in order that. So, it is very essential that we should see that every single step and link in this chain is of central importance. That's why I've been reading the entire prayer to you each Sunday morning as we've been considering it. Each one of them is connected with the previous one. And they've all been leading up to this. Why does he want them to know and comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Why? Well, here's the answer. That, in order that. This is the result. This is the objective which he has in his mind. In order that they and we together with them might be filled with all the fullness of God. There is no more staggering statement in the whole range of Scripture than this. We are indeed standing face to face here with the utmost of experience, with the highest doctrine of all. There is no point, I say without any hesitation, in the whole of the scriptural teaching, as far as we and our experience are concerned, there is nothing higher than this or beyond this. I therefore approach it with you with a sense of awe, with a sense of total inadequacy, and yet, thank God, with a sense of keen expectation. What a wonderful thing it is. Is there a higher privilege in the whole world this morning than just to be looking together at this particular statement? Our natural minds, of course, are totally inadequate to conceive of this or to take it in. But we've already been reminded many times in this epistle that we must have the eyes of our understanding enlightened by the Holy Spirit if we are to make anything of it at all. Or, of course, to the people who call themselves practical and to whom nothing matters but politics and social conditions and economics, this is a waste of time. This is 
an unhealthy consideration of our own inward states and moods and experiences. But alas, poor souls that speak like that are just confessing that they're natural men, that their eyes have not been enlightened. And still more tragically, they evidently have not seen and have not realized, even from a reading of history, that the men who have actually done most in the relief of suffering in this world have been those who have known most about the fullness of God. Now, that's a sure fact of history. Very well, then, let's concentrate on this. In order that having this, we may, under God, be usable and used of him in working in this world with its pain and its tragedy and its sorrow. There is nothing so practical as to become men and women like this Apostle Paul, who himself knew something of this fullness, and who possibly is the greatest benefactor that the human race has ever known. Very well. What does it mean? What is he talking about? Well, we are again driven to start with a negative. Because of the misunderstanding, because of people who come to this kind of statement with their blinded natural eyes, I therefore start off by saying that this is not the teaching of a kind of false mysticism. There are many, I say, who think that it is. And that the apostle here, dropping from his usual clear-sightedness and clear mind and logical capacity and power, suddenly abandoned himself to some kind of mysticism. And, of course, there are false mysticisms which use this kind of phrase but completely misuse it and misunderstand it. There are people, for instance, who talk about the possibility of our being dissolved, as it were, in God and in the eternal. You may perhaps have read books that do that. Some of the cults suggest it. Some of the Eastern religions suggest it. You've got it, in a sense, in Hinduism. Final salvation means absorption in the eternal. You lose your individuality, you lose your personality, you become lost in the divine and in the eternal. They would think that that is what is meant by being filled with all the fullness of God. Then, on the other hand, there is what is called pantheism, which misunderstands this phrase. And pantheism means this. It's almost the exact opposite of what I've just been saying. Pantheism means that God is in everything, and that therefore, in a sense, everything is God. You see, they both have one thing in common, that the distinction between God and man is lost. Man is in God, or God is in men. And thus, they would interpret the phrase, being filled with all the fullness of God. Well, there's only one thing to say about those teachings, they're just never found at all in the Bible. They're never found in the New Testament. There is always this essential distinction between God and man. God is in his heaven, man is upon earth, and we approach him in a given way. There's none of this dissolving into God or God into us. It's a complete contradiction of the essential message of the whole of the scripture, and particularly of the teaching and the writings of this apostle Paul. 
He was always contending against that very thing. I read to you that second chapter of Colossians just now. There he's doing that very thing. There were these mystery religions, these cults, these other religions in his world as there are still. And the apostle always had to fight against them. There was this teaching, you see, which talked about gradations between man and God and how man could somehow travel through from the one to the other. The apostle abominates them. That's what he calls those philosophies, those rudiments of the world. That's human, that's carnal. So this doesn't mean that. And then uh, others have thought that uh, what we really have in this phrase is just uh, what is sometimes called, uh, in a figure of speech, hyperbole. They say your phrase, of course, is just nothing but a man being carried away by his own eloquence. Of course, that is something that is possible. A man may be carried away by his eloquence and with a kind of rhythm and momentum of his own speech, he's carried on. He stopped thinking, but he goes on saying things. It does happen. And it is suggested that that is what happens here, that the apostle is indulging in hyperbole or is being carried away by his own rhetoric, his own eloquence. And rarely at this point is just using words without thinking soberly and seriously as to what he's saying. It's a charge that's often made against this great apostle. But it is, of course, an entirely false charge. The more you analyze his statements, the more you will find that he is writing, when he writes a phrase like this, soberly, Calmly, of course, his mind is moved, his heart is moved by the glory and the transcendence of what he's saying. Yes, but he hasn't forgotten his logical connection, you notice. He's still building up his case. The logic is here. The framework hasn't been abandoned. It's all still in keeping, and indeed this is the inevitable conclusion of all that he's been saying hitherto. So it isn't mere eloquence. It isn't mere piling statement upon statement, throwing in words upon words. No, no. It is still a logical and a clear and a very precise statement. The apostle is never guilty of art for art's sake. He never deliberately tries to be eloquent. Whenever he is eloquent, it's incidental. It's almost accidental. It's the glory of the truth that produces the eloquence. He was not concerned about literary forms or merely about producing an impression. Then there is another misinterpretation, and this is the last of these misinterpretations to which I call attention, which uh, would uh, say that all the apostle is really saying at this point is that uh, the Ephesians might receive and enjoy uh, the various blessings which God has to give us. And that when he says that he might be filled with all the fullness of God, he is saying that you may be filled with all the various blessings which God can give to the believing Christian. Well, I must reject this also, and for this reason, that if he really meant that, this would be somewhat of an anticlimax instead of a climax. To refer to the blessings of the Christian life after talking about Christ dwelling in the heart by faith and knowing the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ in an immediate and direct sense and manner and then to say that you may enjoy all the blessings of the Christian life. 
would be bathotic. It would be nothing, I say, but an anticlimax. And the apostle again is never guilty of that. No, this is the final step. He's here arrived on the very summit. He's standing on one of these great plateaus of God. And there's nothing higher, there's nothing beyond. No, it mustn't be reduced to that. He means what he says. That we can be truly filled with all the fullness of God. Very well then, I say we've got to bear that in mind that it is an acme. It is a mountain top. It is the highest thing of all. God and ourselves and we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now then, what can be more important therefore than for us to know exactly what he is saying? What is this? Unfortunately, our authorized translation here is a little bit misleading by using the word with that he might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that is misleading in this way, that it does tend to give the impression that it is possible for us as human beings to be filled with all that fullness which is God. And the apostle isn't saying that, as I want to try to show you. So we had better translate it like this, and everybody's agreed about this. It isn't some personal opinion of my own. Instead of saying that he may be filled with all the fullness of God, it's better to say that he might be filled to, or with respect to, all the fullness of God. And if you translate it like that, it avoids that most unfortunate suggestion. Because, as I say, it is clearly impossible for a human being to contain the whole of God. Now, it's very important that we should be clear about this. There have been fanatics in the history of the church who, not realizing this, have claimed that for themselves. And, of course, it has led to disastrous consequences. The devil is always there, he's always waiting either to hold us back and to keep us from the truth, or if we do come into it, he'll press us forward, he'll make us claim too much, and we'll become fanatical, and again we've lost the balance of truth and the balance of faith, and we end in a pathetic and in a tragic condition, and the church receives much harm. Now, I say that this is something which is a sheer impossibility. Indeed, you recall that the original sin of men was to listen to the suggestion of the devil who told him that this was a possibility. You'll find it there in the third chapter of Genesis in the fifth verse. You remember the temptation. You remember the conversation between the devil and Eve. And he puts it like this. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die if you eat of the fruit. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. That was the essence of the temptation. He was saying, in other words, he was saying, God is unfair to you. God is just keeping you down. If you eat of that fruit, you'll become as God. You'll be equal to God. 
And therefore, it is of vital importance, clearly, that we should see that this phrase does not mean that. Now, in order to make this point clear, let me put it to you in this form. It has been traditionally the custom in the teaching of Christian doctrine and of theology to say that the attributes of God can be divided into two groups. And it's a very important distinction. There are certain attributes of God and characteristics of God which are incommunicable. They cannot be communicated. But there are other attributes of God which are communicable. And the whole essence of understanding this phrase is to draw the distinction between the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. You see, our phrase is that he may be filled with all the fullness of God. Very well, if the whole of God comes into a man, everything that is true of God is true of me. But the incommunicable attributes, I think, will show us at once that it cannot mean that. What are the incommunicable attributes? Here are them. Eternity. God is eternal, from everlasting to everlasting. I say with reverence that God cannot communicate that to men. That is incommunicable. It is something that belongs to God alone. Here's a second one. Immutability. God cannot change. God is everlastingly and eternally the same. He is the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The immutability of God. That can never be true of a man. God cannot communicate that attribute to a man. Here's another one. Omnipresence. God is everywhere. There is no place but that God is there. God is in heaven. God is on earth. God is everywhere. Or oh, the 139th Psalm is a great expression of that. Omnipresence, that's incommunicable. That can never be true of a man, even though perfect. What else? Omniscience. God knows everything. There is nothing that God doesn't know. He is omniscient. And then omnipotence. There is no limit to the power of God. It is an absolute power without any limit whatsoever. Omnipotence. That's never communicated to men. And then still more marvelous is God's absolute blessedness. The ever-blessed God. That means partly his glory. I suppose the thing that makes God God above everything else is that he is glorious. Glorious in majesty and in power. Watch the word glory as you read your Bibles. The glorious God or the glory of God. Again, obviously, quite incommunicable. It means his perfection, if you like. Or it means his majesty, his splendor. No man hath seen God at any time. Why? Well, no man can see God and live. Why? Because of the splendor of God, the majesty and the glory there are indications of that in the scripture. Even Moses, when he desired to see God, was not allowed to see his face. God said, you remember in that strange term, I will let you see my back parts. 
Any man who's had a vision of God has fallen down. John had it and fell down as dead. The glory and the majesty of God. Now, all these attributes of God, and they're essential attributes, characters, if you like, of God. They're all obviously incommunicable. So we must never interpret our phrase by saying that it means that God as he is can dwell in a man and come into him. No, no. The incommunicable attributes make that a sheer impossibility. What then are the communicable attributes? Here are some of the communicable attributes of God. Attributes of God which he can give to men and which in his grace he does give to men. Holiness. God is holy. Yes, but he has given a commandment. He has said, be ye holy, for I am holy. He can communicate holiness. He does. Righteousness. That essential righteousness, that rightness and justice. God can give that. It is the whole glory of the Christian salvation that a righteousness from God is now given to men through the redemption that is in Christ. Righteousness, communicable. Goodness, love, mercy, compassion, loving kindness, long-suffering, faithfulness. They're all attributes of God. Yes, but they're communicable attributes. Don't you remember Paul in putting it to the Galatians puts it like this? He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, meekness, faith, and temperance. There are some of the communicable attributes of God appearing in men as the fruit of the Spirit. So that now we begin to understand something of what this great phrase means. It must not be taken in that absolute sense, and yet there is a sense in which it must be taken very literally. It isn't merely the blessings of God. It is the communication of something of this fullness of God. Very well, says someone, how does this become ours? How can the apostle rightly pray that the Ephesians and all Christians may be filled to, in respect of, all the fullness of God? Well, this is the most wonderful and glorious thing of all. It all happens, of course, in and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It has all become possible as the result of the incarnation and all the work which he has done. The fullness of which Paul speaks here, in other words, becomes ours through the indwelling of Christ in our hearts and our knowledge of his love. So you see now how carefully the apostle builds up his case, how he works it out. He has already prayed that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, because this is a sure impossibility apart from that. But if Christ does dwell in our hearts by faith, and if we begin to get hold of this love of his and to know it, well then it leads to this dwelling within us of all the fullness of God. Now, let me, uh, from some parallel scriptures, expound this particular statement to you. Take, for instance, what our Lord teaches in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel in verse 23. 
He says there, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Now, you notice that statement. It's the same staggering kind of statement that we've got in our text this morning. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and we, the father and the son, will make, will come unto him and make our abode with him, the father and the son. And you remember that that statement, as the whole of that paragraph in the 14th chapter of John, is in connection with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the comforter that was to come. So that the 14th of John is an exact parallel to this. The Lord is prophesying it there. Paul says, this is now possible. It has happened. It has happened to me. He's praying that it may happen to these Ephesians. He starts with being strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner men. Then Christ dwelling in the heart by faith. And now God the Father. The Father to whom he's praying that he in his fullness may dwell in us. So you're back exactly to the same statement as you have in John 14. But perhaps the simplest way for us to look at it is this. And I say again, that to me it is an astounding thing that a body of men and women in a world like this this morning can be thinking of these things and looking into them. We are not talking abstract theology. This is practical. The apostle is praying. He wants them to know this and to experience this. What is this? Well, look at it like this. It is because of what is true of the Lord Jesus Christ that this becomes possible. If Christ dwells in my heart by faith, well then I say, the fullness of the Godhead is in me by faith. How do I prove it? I prove it like this. Take, for instance, what the apostle tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ in that epistle to the Colossians, in the first chapter and the 19th verse. He says, It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. That's one statement. Then we come on to that second chapter, and in the third verse I read this. In speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All God's wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. All the treasures of his wisdom and knowledge. And then in the ninth verse of that second chapter of Colossians, he makes a still more staggering statement. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How feeble is language. How puny is the human mind and understanding. But there it is. Look at Jesus of Nazareth. There is apparently a man in the body. He's in a body. It isn't a phantom covering of flesh. It's a body. He's as truly man as you and I are. His body is as real as yours and mine. And yet I say, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Body, the whole of God was in him. Look at 
Or listen to it again as the author of the epistle to the Hebrews puts it in his first chapter and the third verse. The God, he said, who has spoken in times past and to the fathers through the prophets in divers ways and manners hath in, this la- in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. What's true of him? Here it is. Who, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. The brightness of God's glory and the effulgence, the express image of his person. Not only a likeness, the very thing itself, the effulgence of God's glory and likeness. That's what the Son is. Now then, you see the doctrine. All that is true of the Lord Jesus Christ, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Very well, if he dwells in our hearts, it follows, doesn't it, that we are filled to all the fullness of God. Now then, this is God's purpose for us. Let me take you to Romans 8.29, and there you'll see the apostle saying it. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine it to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Here it is once more, you see, we are to be conformed to the image of his Son. And what is true of the Son? Well, I've been telling you, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the express image of his person. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and we are to be conformed to that image. But indeed, I needn't have taken you to those other scriptures. It's all in this epistle to the Ephesians. If you go on to chapter 4, the next chapter, you'll find the apostle is saying this, that God has given apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. What for? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Nothing less. You see, this is Christianity. Not just being converted and saying my sins are forgiven and then carrying on like that for the rest of your life and not growing. It's entering into all this unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our minds, you see, are engaged. All our powers are called out to grasp this. Here it is. And if we are content with anything short, we are miserable Christians and we are unworthy of this glorious gospel. But listen to him in the 24th verse of this 4th chapter of Ephesians. He says that it's about time in the light of all this that they put off the concerning the former conversation, the old men, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts. This is the way to preach holiness. Not to offer people some gift, some marvelous life with a capital L, something you receive as not at all. Get hold of your doctrine. Realize what you are and what you're meant to be. That you ought to have all the fullness of God very well. Having realized that, put off 
Concerning the former conversation, the old men which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed where? In the spirit of your mind. That's where you start. And that he put on the new men, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, or holiness of the truth, God's own holiness. That's the way to teach holiness. You can't be holy if you don't know your doctrine. Doctrine is the direct key that leads to holiness. It's only as we realize these things that then we can listen to the inevitable logical appeal for conduct and behavior and ethics that follows. Very well, we've seen that this is how it becomes a possibility. That leaves me with one other question only which I'm going to ask this morning, and it's this. How does it work then? Well, the answer is this. It's this great and glorious New Testament doctrine of the union of the believer with Christ. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. The union. Don't try to understand this. It cannot be understood. But the fact is the New Testament everywhere tells us that we are joined to Christ. We are in him. Oh, in the fifth chapter of this same epistle, the apostle is going on to say that we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. That sort of union. Now then, how does it work? Well, let me quote you some of the most Glorious scriptures that are to be found in the entire Bible. Listen to the Apostle John writing his gospel. And here he says it at the very beginning in the first chapter in the 16th verse. He says, and of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. Of his fullness have all we received and grace upon grace. Our Lord had already taught it in the days of his flesh uh, when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. That's the relationship. The vine, the branches. We are branches in the vine and he is the vine. That helps us to understand it, doesn't it? Or indeed, we've already seen it in the last verse of the first chapter of this epistle to the Ephesians. He's talking about the church and he says, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. May I use these analogies suggested by the scripture, therefore, in order to elucidate this great statement to you? How, you ask, can the fullness of God therefore reside in me? Well, it's in exactly the same way. As the fullness of the vine is in every individual branch. The life of the vine is in every individual branch and twig. The fullness of the vine, the essence, the life, that thing that's in that sap that makes the vine the vine, it's in the branches also. All the fullness of the vine is in the branches because of this organic connection, this vital union. Or taking it in terms of the body, which the apostle has already used and which is used so frequently in the Bible, 
You know, it is true to say that the whole of the fullness of my life and being is in my little finger. Because of this organic union and relationship. You see, these parts of my body are not just stuck on. They're all living parts of me. And my blood goes through my little finger as well as through my head. The fullness of my head is in my little finger. It's in an organic, vital relationship. So I can speak of the fullness of my life in my finger. There is a sense in which the whole of my life is not in my finger. I can live without my little finger. And yet, while this little finger is a part of me, my life is in it. My fullness is in it. In other words, to understand this verse we are looking at this morning, we must cease to think in terms of amount, but must think in terms of quality. It isn't quantity that the apostle is speaking about. He is speaking about the quality. The quality of God's fullness in Christ is ours. If Christ is in me, well then all the fullness of the Godhead is in me in that sense. Now, Get rid, I say, of quantity. Think only in terms of quality. Because the amount varies. It varies in the same men from time to time. It varies from one of us to the other. And yet we all can have the fullness. I once came across an illustration in this connection which I found rather helpful to show you how you can have the fullness and yet have more of it. A man used the illustration of blowing air into a bladder or into a balloon. You blow it and there it is, it's full of air. And yet you blow more and it's still full of air, but bigger than it was before. It's full of air on both occasions, but the second it's bigger than it was in the first. Or if you like, you can take a bottle and put it into the sea and you can fill it and you can say that bottle is full of the sea. Then you can take a great tank and do the same thing. They both have a fullness, but they haven't the same amount. And yet, you see, the sea is always the sea. And that little bottle full of sea has got the characteristics of the sea in fullness as much as the tank has, with all its mighty gallons of the same sea. The fullness of the sea is in the bottle, quite as much as in the great tank. And so, you see, it becomes possible for us to grow in grace as well as in the knowledge of the Lord. It doesn't mean, therefore, that we are all identical if we all have the fullness of God. It doesn't mean that we all have the same gifts. The apostle is going on in the next chapter to say that we haven't. Some apostles, some prophets, some pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so on, the, the, the gifts differ. You say, but oh, God's always one. And if the fullness of God is in me and in all others, we must be identical. You're thinking in terms of quantity again, in, in, instead of quality. It's the fullness of God that matters. It's the quality. It's the characteristic. And so, you see, you may have two people, two Christians, one a brilliant intellect and another a very ordinary person without any gifts at all. But thank God, the second can be filled with the fullness of God in exactly the same way as the first. It doesn't turn him into a genius. He doesn't suddenly become a brilliant writer or speaker or anything else you like. No, no. His gifts remain as they were, his propensities and powers. Ah, yes. But because Christ is in him and because of his relationship, 
He is filled with the fullness of God as much as this mighty apostle was. So the secret of understanding, I say, is to realize that we mustn't think of it in quantity and in amount, but in quality. In relationship to Christ, in experience of Christ's love, he takes it out of the realm of gifts and powers. Indeed, I can close by putting it in a word which our Lord himself used in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. He was talking there about love, you remember. Loving your enemies and doing good to them that hate them. He says that is what God does, and you ought to be like that. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. All the fullness of God. You haven't suddenly become divine and ceased to be a man. You haven't suddenly become eternal and immutable and absolute and omnipotent and omniscient. No, no. But this fullness of God in these communicable attributes has come into you. And you in turn are manifesting and displaying and showing the same love. As God shows to sinners, you are showing it to others. Very well, I've been trying to define it this morning, and God willing, we shall go on next Sunday morning to look at it in a little more experimental manner in order to see what it means to us in our day-to-day experiences and why, therefore, we should be seeking for it and praying this prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians for ourselves day by day and unceasingly until we attain even unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Amen.